Mark chapter 5 in our verse-by-verse study, we're going to cover some ground today, 20 verses, Lord willing. But let's just read the first five verses now of Mark chapter 5. It says, And they came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. And when they had come out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met Jesus. And he had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. And constantly, night and day among the tombs and in the mountains, he was crying out and gashing himself with stones. Father, this morning as we look into your word, we ask that you would speak to us that you would reveal things to us, that you would make the things concerning your word and your truths very clear, Lord, very apparent that there would be no question and no doubt as to what is right and what is wrong and what you want us to know. For those of us that need to be instructed in various areas, open our hearts to those areas now. We want to hear from you. We don't want to waste the next hour and a half just sitting in this room. May it never be. We want to hear from the living God. We want to be changed and transformed and empowered and set free and set right by you. So God, come and speak to us. I submit my mind and my mouth to you. Let every word that comes from these lips be directly from your Holy Spirit. Let it be for the edification of the saints. In Jesus' name, amen. We see in this very famous chapter, this very well-known chapter, a man who was severely tormented by demons. You think you had a bad week? Check this guy out. We see in this text concerning this man that he had supernatural strength. Being demon-possessed, he exhibited strength that was beyond the human realm, beyond human comprehension, beyond what was normal. The citizens, his friends, the people in the region, whatever, had tried to bound him up. They tried to chain him. They tried to shackle him. And repeatedly, he was able to break the chains. So this demon-possessed man had supernatural strength. We see that he also had abnormal habits. We're told in our text that he was dwelling among the graves. He was hanging out among the dead, among the tombs. And that's just not normal, in case you didn't know that. Beyond that, we glean by what we'll read later on in the end of the chapter that he was doing this naked, that he ran around naked. And so we picture this guy hanging out in the graveyard. We're told that he made crazy sounds, that he's shrieking. He probably had broken chains and shackles hanging from him, and he's there nude. Beyond that, sadly, he was violent and self-destructive. It says that he would cry out day and night and that he was gashing himself with stones. This is a man who was tormented. A man who really needed an outside agent to come and make a change for him. Wasn't able to deliver himself. No doubt the gashing was a sign of, man, this thing in me, I want to be free from it. He needed Jesus to deliver him. The first thing we need to realize about our text this morning is that it is a true account. The Bible has been scrutinized more than any book in history for the last couple of thousand years. And through archaeology and manuscript evidence and historical evidence, it has shown itself to be true. This is a historical account, not an allegory, not a fairy tale. The second thing we need to realize about this account is that the depiction of the demon-possessed man that we see here can be and often is a reality in our world today. We don't like to think about demons in this way. Some people even today would like to think, well, demons were something that was going on during Bible times, but it's not happening now. There's absolutely nothing in the Bible to suggest that there would be demonic activity then and not now. In fact, if we're to read the Bible, it would suggest just the opposite. The demonic activity would increase in the physical world in the last days. Because Jesus said in the book of Thessalonians and the book of Timothy say, the last days will be characterized by deception. And the tool of the enemy is deception. And so demonic activity even increases as we head toward the last days. 
We don't often see this sort of demonic possession in our midst, in our society, though it does exist. Some of us have seen such things. I have seen such things. Just yesterday, I was having a conversation about some of the things going on in our public school system. And someone there was mentioning to me that they had heard about all the people at the junior high level who had taken to cutting themselves. They call them cutters. And we have kids in our community that cut themselves. What is going on inside their little hearts that they resort to this? What is that? Well, I'll tell you this, it's not God. Which makes me think that it might be Satan. Not necessarily that they're possessed by a demon, but that there's a demonic influence working among the youth, that he's brought them to such a point of confusion, such a point of despair, such a point of distortion, that they've taken to cutting themselves. That may be one of the ways that we see demonic influence manifesting itself in our world today. But if you read books or talk to missionaries, you'll see that those who are on the front lines, uh, the cutting edge of the gospel going forth, that they see things that we read about in the New Testament all the time. Radically possessed people and radically set free people. So as we read our text today, we need to realize that this is a reality in our world. But we also know that though it's a reality, this context before us is an extreme case. And here's what I mean. Not that it's necessarily so rare, but that it's extreme in its manifestation. In other words, demonic influence and demonic presence can manifest itself in many different ways. It doesn't always appear to be violent and evil and dark and naked and screaming and bound up. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 14 through 15, that even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants, those serving Satan, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. In other words, there are those in the church context, in the context of our society, who would appear pious, who may appear to be churchgoers, or who may appear to be good citizens, or very religious, and yet they're demonized, they're demonically charged. Satan is no fool. He knows how to disguise himself and when to disguise himself. He knows when to be brash and out front and when to be covert. And because he's no fool, we need to be wise. And one of the ways that we can be wise about the working of demons in our world today is to have a balanced perspective. There are often two mistakes that are made with regards to demons. One is the person that sees demons in every situation. It doesn't matter what happened. They show up at Vaughn's and they go in there and they're hoping to score a box of Ben and Jerry's and they look and they open up the freezer and there's no Ben and Jerry's and they say, oh man, the devil. I rebuke you, Satan, the devil. No, man, there's just no Ben and Jerry's. It's got nothing to do with the devil. And so often, well-meaning Christians make the mistake of trying to see the working of Satan in every little thing. That's not a balanced view. The other end of that extreme or of that continuum is the person that wishes to see Satan in nothing. In other words, no matter how weird circumstances are, how horrible, how awful, they refuse to believe that the devil might be working. Neither of those is a biblical view. We need to fall somewhere in between. That the devil is alive and working in our world today and we need to be wise and discerning. We're told in the book of 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8. Be sober, be self-controlled because your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And then it says in the next verse, 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 9, it says, uh, stand firm therefore and resist the devil. It doesn't say stand firm and ignore the devil. Somehow, in some segments of the church, the resist has gotten mistranslated and people think it means ignore. The Bible never tells us to ignore the schemes or the presence of the enemy. Instead, it tells us to be wise, to be prayed up, to have our spiritual armor on, to be able to wield the sword of the Spirit, to be ready in prayer, to stand firm, to resist the enemy, and he will flee from us, the Bible says. But it never says to ignore. And so we seek to have a balanced perspective. C.S. Lewis, in a phenomenal book called The Screwtape Letters, um, and we should probably order that, get some copies of that. Um, C.S. Lewis, The Screwtape Letters, he writes this. 
There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about demons. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both. Errors... Um, what were errors and hell? Oh, by both, <laughs> and are equally pleased. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Let me read it. <laughs> Help me. I want the car pie. Okay. <laughs> so did my bro Larry. He knows. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. And hell a materialist and a magician with the same delight. Let me paraphrase because we're all dumb, I have the feeling. That Satan doesn't matter which way you err just as long as you err. Right? He doesn't matter if you're a materialist and you're saying, demons got nothing to do with our world today. Or if you're a freak out sort of magician type that's saying, he's everywhere, he's doing everything. As long as you're in error, that's what Satan is worried about. Remember, he's the enemy of truth. And that's why the Bible says the truth shall set you free. And so we need to have a balanced perspective lest we fall under the schemes of the enemy. With these points in mind, we want to ask this question this morning. Why do demons seek to harm people? Why did they seek to harm people in the biblical accounts? And why do they seek to harm people today? Number one, because we are created in the image of God and we are the object of God's love. Demons seek to harm people and to mess with people because we are created in God's image and we are the object of God's love. Let me say it to you this way. If demons can't get to God, they're going to get to that which God loves most. You know what I'm saying? You and I. If demons can't mar God himself, they're going to try to mar or muddy or distort the image of God in humanity in you and I. They're going to seek to disrupt the glory of God by disrupting the normal functioning of a human being. And so Satan messes with us because in reality, his ultimate enemy is God. But if he can't get to God, he's going to get to what God loves most. You can understand that. And that's you and I. And he wants to muddy the image of God by trying to distort us. Satan is like a vandal. He's like a vandal. He wants to take what God created to be beautiful and mess it up and taint it. But we realize as we move to the second reason that Satan has a special eye for the Christian. That is, for the bride of Christ. When you become a Christian, you now, though God loved you before, you now enter into a new relationship with him, one that is unhindered by sin, your sins having been forgiven. And the New Testament declares that we, Christians, are the bride of Jesus Christ. Now, You can mess with my friends and we can still get along. You mess with my wife, I'm going to kill you. You see, you don't mess with a man's wife. And so because we are the bride of Christ, Satan has a special eye for the Christian. Satan really wants to mess with the Christian. And here's reason number two, because we have been adopted into God's family. We've been adopted into God's family. What does it mean that we've been adopted into God's family? The first thing that it means is that we've been taken out of Satan's family. Now, people don't want to hear this. There's going to be people here this morning that hate this truth. But in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 3, it declares that those who are without the forgiveness of sin are classified as children of wrath. That is to say, they're not children of God, but they're children of Satan. Not that Satan created them. God created all of us. We are all his creation. But only those who join his family through Christ Jesus have been given the right to be called the children of God. And there's a distinction between those two. And so when we're born again, it declares in Colossians chapter 1, round about verse 13, that we're delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. They were removed from Satan's family, no longer a child of wrath. We now become a child of God. It says in John chapter 1, verse 12, to as many who have received Christ Jesus, to them has been given the right to be called the children of God. And so what does it mean that we've been adopted into God's family? We've been removed from the family and from the sphere of influence of Satan. And we are now under the dominion of God. That's a good thing, right? So we're removed from his family. 
Now, the Bible declares repeatedly that we are adopted into God's family. In our mind, that word adoption has various connotations. Some good, some not so good. But we need to strip away our 21st century connotations, or whatever century it is, and we need to go back to the first century mindset and connotations with regards to adoption. In that time, if you were adopted by a father, it meant that you were specially and significantly chosen by that father. Okay? That he came looking for someone that he might lovingly call son, and he chose you. Furthermore, it means that you now have the same status as a son who was born to him, but you might even have a, a capacity to even more fully receive the love of that father and more rightly represent his interests. And further, it meant that you were an heir to all that was his. When you were adopted, you were an heir to all that was his. And you had the opportunity to rightly represent him. And, having been an orphan before, you were now in love of that awe of, uh, in love of that awe of the Father. Or, in love. In awe of the love of the Father, thank you, and received it all the more. Also in that century, to be adopted meant that all the old family ties were cut completely. Any baggage you had, it was left behind. Any debt you had, it was left behind. Don't you wish someone would adopt you? Any debt you had, any baggage you had, any problems, any beef with the old family, it was all considered done and dead, and you had a brand new beginning. So in the mindset of the New Testament, adoption was a wonderful and full thing. So when we've been adopted into the family of Christ, we've made a break with the old family, which is the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of this world. We've made a break with it. The old debt of sin is gone. The old baggage is gone. And we have a brand new clean slate. And we are heirs to the Father, having been chosen by Him to represent Him. And that is the third reason why Satan, uh, concerning our subtext here, that is the third reason why Satan wants to mess with the Christian, because we are heirs to the kingdom of God. We are heirs to the kingdom of God. What does that mean? It means that we're heirs to eternity and all the reward that is promised to us. We're heirs to the kingdom ministry in this day, here, and now. And we are heirs of God himself. Of God himself. The Bible declares that we are heirs of God himself. That is to say, we get God. You belong to God and God belongs to you. He is your heavenly father. He himself, his presence, his being, is part of the reward for the adopted Christian, the one who has the promise of heaven. You'll recall that in the Old Testament, when God was dividing up the land among the 12 tribes, that there was a tribe of Levi, the Levites, and they were the priestly tribe. And because they were the priestly tribe, the ones who served God, they did not get an allotment of land like the other 12 tribes or the other 11 tribes. Instead, the Bible declares in the book of Deuteronomy several times that their portion was the Lord. They didn't need any land. They didn't need any material reward because their reward was the Lord himself. That is why the Christian is able to say, as Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, I count all the things of this world as loss in light of knowing Jesus Christ. That nothing in this world really matters in light of the fact that I am born again, forgiven, going to heaven, and all the kingdom and the promises and the power and the love and the presence of God belong to me. If that didn't turn you on, you ain't got no switch, you need to wake up, you need to do something, you need to drink some coffee. That's an amazing thing that we've been forgiven and have those promises. And what Satan wants is for the heir of the promises of God to not walk in those truths, to forget them, to neglect them, to ignore them, to not live according to them. Paul the Apostle lived according to them. In Romans chapter 8, verse 18, he said this, I do not consider these present sufferings, the stuff I'm going through in my life, I do not consider these present sufferings worthy to be compared with the glory that we shall see in God. In other words, in light of all that is ours for eternity, I don't sweat this lifetime. You see how that attitude would set you free if you had it? You see how that would change your life? We get so bound up in this lifetime, so bound up in the things of the world, so concerned, so overwhelmed, so messed up in it all. If we would just have the mindset of the adopted son, the heir to all that there is, we'd say, I don't sweat this. I don't sweat this. I'm going to go through it. I'm going to get a grip. I'm going to give God a call. I'm not going to be dumb, but I'm not going to sweat this because God is faithful. Amen? 
Man, we need that perspective. But Satan wants to keep you from that perspective. He wants to keep you bound up in the worldly things. He doesn't want you thinking about eternity. Thirdly, we are God's primary representatives here on earth. This is why Satan has a special eye for the Christian, because we are God's primary representatives here on earth. And very succinctly and very simply, Satan wants you to mess up that representation of God. You've heard us say here at this church several times, you may be the only Bible some people ever read. Your life, your witness, the things you do, the things you say may be all that someone comes to know and understand about Jesus Christ. And so because we represent him, because the Christians are declared in the Bible to be his ambassadors, Satan wants to mess up our representation. He wants the witness of our life to be a little sloppy. He wants the sharing of the truth of God to hold no weight behind, to have no weight because our actions don't back it up. Now, looking at those reasons, and I want you to listen very carefully to me now. Listening to those reasons why Satan wants to mess with people and the more specifically Christians. The question that is begged here is to what extent can Satan mess with people? You need to listen very carefully now. To what extent can Satan mess with people? If you're not a Christian, if you don't have... God in you, if he's not your Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus, then it sky's the limit to the extent with which he can mess with you. Because you're in his kingdom. You're subject to him. I know you don't like to hear that, and I'm not telling you that. The Bible's telling you that, but I do agree with it. I have found the Bible to be true. And so you might want to think about whose kingdom you're in today. It's very easy to come out of Satan's kingdom and into God's. It's called repenting. God, I'm sorry for being a sinner. I need forgiveness. And then you transfer from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. But what about the Christian? To what extent can the enemy mess with a Christian? The word demon possessed in the New Testament is an unfortunate translation. The word would be more literally translated demonized. Anytime you read in your Bible, demon-possessed, a more literal translation and one that more correctly represents what's going on is the word demonized. That would be true to the Greek. Why is that important? Well, possession inherent in the term has the idea of ownership. It would follow that if someone is demon-possessed, then they're under the ownership of Satan, under the authority of Satan. Now, a Christian cannot be under the ownership of Satan. He cannot be under the authority of Satan because he is under the ownership of Jesus Christ, under the authority of Jesus Christ. And so when we use the word that is so often used in the Bible of demon-possessed, it creates for us an either-or situation. Like either someone is demon-possessed or they're not. That is why demonized is a more correct translation and a better word for us to understand. Because within the context of demonized now, we can see varying degrees to which someone has come under the influence of Satan. How demonized can a Christian be? A Christian can be severely demonized. Why? Because they have given their mind over to the influence of the enemy. And once the mind is influenced by someone, the physical body follows. That is why within even the Christian, there can be some sort of influence over the physical body by a demon. There could be some influence over the mind of the Christian. There can be a form or a degree of demonization. Not demon possession, but demonization. You see, the question is, who's controlling your mind? Who's controlling your mind? It's either you or the Holy Spirit, or Satan, or some mixture thereof. Now, for the Christian, we want the Holy Spirit controlling our mind, don't we? We want to walk according to the Spirit. And to do that, we've got to bring ourselves in submission to the Holy Spirit. We need to ask Him the right things and respond in the right way. And then we are under the guiding of the Holy Spirit. That is a wonderful opportunity for every Christian. Now, sometimes we say about someone, oh, he's in the flesh. What does that mean? 
It's no longer the Holy Spirit who is guiding their mind primarily, but now they took over for a little while, right? We don't say, oh, he's Brit-possessed. We just say he's in the flesh, right, if it were me. And so I've sort of gotten on the throne. I've sort of taken control for a minute, and I'm now calling the shots and not the Holy Spirit. Can anybody relate? That's an unfortunate situation. We want to minimize that and maximize the influence of the Holy Spirit. But sometimes even the Christian can open themselves up to the influence of the enemy. How do we do that? Several ways. Number one, unrepentant sin. Sin that we refuse to repent of. Continuing on in a lifestyle of sin. Why does that open us up to the influence of the enemy? Because as long as we continue in that sin, we're not walking according to the Spirit. We're walking away from His ways. And the only direction then is the direction of the enemy. And so you willingly, whether consciously or not, submit your mind and your will to the enemy and he can now begin to influence your decisions, your thought life, and your actions. It's very unfortunate. It's very bad. We don't want to be in that place. What else can get the Christian under the influence of the enemy? Involvement with things having to do with the occult. Involvement with satanic things. Not that the demons are are transmitted through some physical object, like someone who uh, had demons, they touched a plate, and now you went to the restaurant, and you ate off the plate, and you have the demon. It doesn't work like that. But the content of things. If you have a book of witchcraft, the content of that invites demonic influence. And so... unrepentant sin, unconfessed sin, occultic influence, one of the biggest ones that the enemy takes advantage of is bitterness in our heart and unforgiveness. This is his biggest open door into the church. Right now in this room, there are people who are bitterly upset with others in this room. Just angry, just refusing to forgive. I don't know this because I read your mail or because we gossip about you. I know this because it's human nature. And in a room this size, especially a church this size, there's going to be many of those. And that's unfortunate and it's destructive. And it's an open door for the enemy into your life and into our church. The enemy wreaks havoc with unforgiveness and bitterness in our hearts. Have you ever noticed how if you don't forgive someone, it affects you far more than it affects them? They like get over it. They're going to go surf and do their thing. Whatever, dude, I'm over you. But for you, you can't sleep at night. You start thinking these horrible thoughts. You start saying these awful things. And now you're no longer primarily walking with the Spirit, but you've now given yourself to a little bit of influence of the enemy. To use the term very carefully now, demonized to one extent or the other. Not demon-possessed, but demon-influenced. It's happened to me in my life, and it may have happened to some of you. It's very easy to come out from underneath the influence of the enemy and back into the realm of the Holy Spirit. It's called just repent. (laughs) It's called just repent. And then secondly, to stand in the authority that you have as a son or daughter of Christ Jesus. To stand in that authority. To be able to say to the enemy, you have no right in my life. I refuse to believe your lies. I refuse to accept them as truth. I reject them and I give myself to the truth of Jesus Christ. Forgive me, God, for believing those things. Speak your truth to me. It's that simple and it's that powerful when we stand on the word of God and the authority that God has given us. Now, whether we're a Christian or not, then, Satan's purpose is to keep us from God's purposes. That's the bottom line. Whatever God wants you to do, the enemy wants you to do the opposite, whether it's within regards to salvation or victorious living. Now, the man before us was extremely messed up. As we can see, he was having a horrible week. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said that Satan comes to kill and to steal and to destroy. See, the Bible's not ambiguous at all. People say, the Bible's so hard to understand. It's mysterious. It's really not. Jesus said explicitly, Satan comes to kill, to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And then he said in the second half of John 10.10, but I came that people might have life and have it more abundantly. And then we're told in the book of 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, the greater is he who is in you, that is Christ Jesus, than he who is in the world, that is the enemy. And so here's what I want you to notice. 
that Jesus went to the man. Did you catch that? The man couldn't help himself. He's, he's in the tombs. He's screaming out. He's cutting himself. And Jesus went to him. Do you remember last week in our text that Jesus said to the boys, let's get in the boat and let's go to the other side? He was intent. He had a purpose of going to the other side. And now we see in verse 1 of chapter 5 that he's come to the other side. Yes, there was a storm on the way, but the Lord didn't give up. He kept on coming. And when he got to the other side, we're told in verse 2 of chapter 5 that the man immediately met him there. In other words, Jesus had this appointment, this divine appointment, so to speak. It was in his schedule book. He went to find this man to set him free. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus says, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Isn't it good news that for those who are in this position, God is looking for them. God is seeking after them. Can anybody testify in your own life being in a bad place and God coming after you? Aren't you glad that he does? He comes after us even when we're not able to go to him in and of ourselves. He goes after people. I also want you to notice not only did Jesus go after him, but that man's efforts to get this guy right were failing. Did you notice that in verses 3 and 4? that the people would tie him up, they would bound him up, they'd put him in shackles, they'd lock him away, and they couldn't get him better. Man's efforts were ineffective. They were to no avail. They weren't able to get the job done. Listen to me, Christians. There are some things that men just cannot do, and you need God to do it. This is one of these situations. All that his neighbors, all that his friends, all that his family were able to do to him didn't change his situation whatsoever. He needed an outside agent, Jesus Christ, to come and do it for him. No one else was strong enough. Colossians 2.15 says that on the cross, Jesus Christ disarmed the enemy. That through the cross, he disarmed the enemy. He took away the power. He took away the artillery. He took away the weapons. Jesus is the only one that could do that. It says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, that God has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Christ Jesus. That God has given us everything that we need for life through Jesus Christ. And so we need to realize that in situations like this, we can't always go to man, we've got to go to God. Now let's take it outside the immediate context of a man demon-possessed and put it into your daily life. In your daily life, you've got to be able to go to God for all things. Give all your anxiety to him because he cares for you, it says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. He doesn't just want the big things. He wants everything. God is a God of details. He counted the hairs upon your head. He counted them. He formed you in your mother's womb. He knows when a sparrow falls from its nest and you are infinitely more important to him than a sparrow. And so God wants to handle the every detail of your lives. He wants to care for you through those details, take care of them for you. But the problem is, is we so often look to man's solutions. And men couldn't do anything for this guy. There was nothing they could do. I know that there's some people in here right now who you're in a situation in your life and and you're just battling and all you need to do is you just need to surrender it to God. You just need to say, Jesus, come. I can't do this. There's nobody that can help me but you. There are moments like that in life where I can't help you. Your mom can't help you. Your best friend can't help you. Only God can clean the mess up. And he's faithful to do so, amen? And so, we need to avoid going on in our own strength or in the wisdom of men and give God a chance to help. Here's one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed or happy are all those who long for him. God is waiting. He's sitting there on the throne in all his sovereignty, waiting to deal with your situation. Isn't it weird that we so seldom go to him? He's waiting on high to have compassion on you. Just waiting. Don't you wish you had someone like that? 
I was talking the other day with Eric Nystrom and Andrew Van Gundy, our junior high pastor, and we were talking about our dirt bikes. And we were talking about the suspension. And we said, wouldn't it be great if we had a mechanic who would follow us around and tune the suspension of our dirt bikes for us for every situation which we are riding in? We said, that would be awesome if we had someone that cared for us that way. Sounds silly to you, but for me, it'd be a dream come true. But with regards to life, we have someone like that. God is waiting to tune your situation. He's waiting to make adjustments in your heart and in the world around you. He's waiting to tend to your every need. It's just that we seldom give him the chance when we need to give him the chance. And so we find ourselves in the same place as this guy who was demonized, not trusting God, but Jesus showed up anyway. I want you to see what happened to the problem when Jesus came on the scene as we make it now to verse 6. And seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. What happened to the problem when Jesus showed up on the scene? What happened? Did you read the Bible with me just now? What happened to the problem when Jesus showed up? Oh, who said that? Was that you, Brooke? It bowed? It bowed. Did you see that? The problem, the demons, when Jesus came, the problem had to bow down. Because God is sovereign, because God is in control, because he's the king. Even the demons, it says, came and bowed down before him. In your NIV, it says that the demons got on the knees before him. In your King James, it says, in a correct translation of the word in the Greek, that the demons came and worshipped him. They worshipped him. When Jesus came on the scene, even the demons, the problem had to bow down to his presence and his sovereignty. Now, when it says the demons worship Jesus, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that they worshiped him in the sense that we do. We worship Jesus out of adoration, don't we? We worship him out of love. These demons were bowing down out of recognition of his authority. They had to bow down as their creator just came on the scene. The one who held the future in his hands. I need you to understand that your problem will do the same thing when you allow Jesus to show up on the scene. So they bowed down at the feet of Jesus, and then they admitted his power. They said, oh man, are you coming to mess with us, Jesus, son of the most high God? So the demons bowed down. The demons admitted his power. And then I want you to see something very peculiar in the way that I'm going to word it to you in verse 10. It says concerning the demonized man in verse 10, and he began to entreat him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a big herd of pigs feeding there on the mountain and the demons entreated him or begged him saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Losing, using the term loosely, the demons prayed. They spoke to God here. They spoke to Jesus. They entreated him earnestly. That's what we say about prayer. Oh, I've just been begging the Lord. Lord, please do this. The demons were begging the Lord. Lord, please do this. Don't send us into the abyss. Don't mess us up. Because they knew that in the end, God was going to mess them up. They didn't know the time frame, but they know because it's in the book of Revelation. said, don't mess us up. Send us into the pigs. I want you to take note what just took place with these demons. They bowed down before Jesus Christ. They confessed his power and they prayed, so to speak. Now I need to ask you, what makes you different than a demon? Because there are many people who will come to church and they'll bow down. They'll confess the power and the personhood of Jesus Christ and they'll even pray. But the demons did the same thing. What makes you different than a demon? Only one prayer. God, I'm wrong and you're right. Forgive me. 
at that moment, there comes a distinction between you and the demons. See, the book of James declares that the demons know that God is one. They know exactly who he is, and they shudder. There's a lot of religious people that they knew exactly who Jesus Christ is. They're even willing to bow down, and they'll even tell you that they pray, but they're not born again. All the time in my personal evangelism, I'll talk to people, and I'll be sharing the Lord with them, talking that they need to be born again, and they'll say to me, what are you talking about? I pray all the time. I know immediately that that's a danger sign. It means nothing if you pray apart from salvation. Even the demons spoke to Jesus. That doesn't mean anything apart from being a child of God. Apart from having been forgiven by him, it's absolutely meaningless. In fact, Isaiah 59 says this, The ear of the Lord is not so dull that it cannot hear, nor is the arm of the Lord so short that it cannot save, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have made the situation that he does not hear. In other words, God is not hearing those prayers until you pray the prayer that removes your sin. Until you pray the prayer of confession and repentance, God forgive me and cleanse me. That is the primary prayer. Psalm 66, verse 18 says it this way. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. You could say you pray all day long. But if you're following after evil or iniquity, God doesn't hear that prayer. That's the situation of the demons. In 1 John 3, 22, And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. What is his command to be born again? What is pleasing in his sight? That you become a child of his. At that moment, God hears your prayers. And so let me just ask you this morning, in all love, is there a separation, a difference between you and demons? Because if you're merely religious, then there isn't. There really isn't. You guys are under the same power, and you have the same end. That's what the Bible says. But if you've prayed the prayer of forgiveness, then there is a vast difference. Now you worship not out of recognition, now you worship out of adoration. And now you're a child of God and not a child of wrath. And now your end is all the inheritance of heaven. And so what makes a difference is a surrendered heart to God. The demons knew exactly who he was, but they weren't going to surrender their hearts to him. We need a saving faith, not just a believing faith. Now, verse 12, again, And the demons entreated him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And he gave them permission And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. This is kind of weird, huh? When Jesus said to the demon, what's your name? He said, Legion, for we are many. A legion, a Roman legion, was 6,826 people. 6,826 people. The demon said, we are legion. Demons are liars, so I don't know if there was actually 6,826 demons in this man, but there might have been 2,000 because there were 2,000 pigs, and they all got demon-possessed. Either way, there's a whole lot of demonic activity going on in this guy, be it 6,826 or a couple thousand. And I want you to notice, the Bible doesn't tell us how long this man has been messed with by Satan. It could have been a good portion of his life, but in an instant, he was set free. And when he was set free, he had the pleasure of watching his problem drown in the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is able to do that in a moment. He'll set you free, and he'll send the little pigs running and drown them in the sea for you. Isn't that wonderful deliverance? Only our God can do that. And I want you to notice that he defeated the legion with a word. Jesus defeated the legion with a word. Don't be afraid of Satan. Don't be afraid of demons. Jesus, your Lord and Savior, defeated them with one word. 6,826 demon versus Jesus. And Jesus won in an instant. All the man's torture just sunk away and drowned in a moment. This instance of the pigs is kind of weird. Why did Jesus allow the demons to go into the pigs? I don't know. It seems strange to us that the demons wanted to go into the pig. I think it paints a picture for me that demons don't see humans any differently than they see pigs. They've got no respect for humanity. They're going to take us out of this guy, let us go into those pigs. It was the first instance in history of deviled ham. I was going to try not to say that one, but... 
I went there. I couldn't resist. Other people see this, and they see that Jesus sent the demons and 2,000 pigs, and the 2,000 pigs died, and people see, look, man, Jesus, he's not right, man. Those pigs belong to somebody. Hey, you know what? Jesus is right. If Jesus killed 2,000 pigs, it was the right thing to do. If he sent the demons in 2,000 pigs, it was the right thing to do. And who are you to question God? There is no question. We don't know the circumstance. Some speculate that living on this side of the Sea of Galilee, and we'll go to this very place where the embankment is that these pigs ran over, because the region is fairly unchanged over the last 2,000 years, and it's all low banks around the Sea of Galilee, except on the eastern side, there's some steep banks. We'll go there on our trip to Israel this summer. We'll go to the place and read the text again and trip out where the pigs went in. But some speculate that there were Jews who were dwelling on that side of the Sea of Galilee and they had fallen away from their covenant with God. They were no longer following the Lord and now they're raising up these little pigs to sell to the Gentiles. And you know that the Jews weren't supposed to do that with the pigs. And so it may have been a judgment upon their business practices and their apostasy of Jesus Christ. And you need to know that if material things get in the way of you and the Lord, God will remove them. In his grace, he will remove them. We don't know what the situation was, but whatever it was, Jesus is right. Now, verse 14. And their herdsmen ran away and reported it to the city and out in the country. And read this very carefully. And the people came to see what it was that happened. And the people came to see what it was that happened. And they came to Jesus and observed the man. Are you reading that with me? The people went to see what happened and they came to Jesus, but they looked at the man. And it says concerning the man, the one who had been demonized was sitting down, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. And those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demonized man and all about the swine, and they began to beg him to depart from their region. Did you catch that? They wanted to see what took place. They wanted to see Jesus. They came to see Jesus. But when they came to see him, they looked at the man. Can any Christian understand what I'm saying this morning? When somebody wants to see Jesus Christ in our world, they're going to look at you. Because you are the one who has been delivered from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You are the one that was a raging lunatic running around here, carp, partying, and now you're clothed and in your right mind, having been delivered and forgiven. And when people want to see Jesus Christ because they can't see him physically, they're going to look at you because you are the ambassador and you are the representative. That is a wonderful privilege. Don't let that scare you or frighten you or discourage you. Let that encourage you to holy living. What a wonderful thing that we could show forth the glory of God. Will we fail in it? Absolutely, repeatedly, all the time. Thankfully, in the end analysis, the salvation of others doesn't depend upon us, but the working of the Holy Spirit. But isn't it cool that we get to be a part of it, that we get to participate by our witness? They wanted to see Jesus, and so they observed the man. And when they saw the man, a horrible thing happened in verse 17. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. This is heartbreaking. They would rather have the man demon-possessed in their region than to have Jesus in their region. That's heartbreaking, and that's a picture of our community and our world, that so many of them would rather deal with the evil than deal with Jesus Christ. I don't understand that. I don't understand how people reject the love of God, but that is the reality. We're told in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, concerning those who reject the gospel, that the God of this world, that is Satan, little God, little G, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the glory of the gospel of God in Christ Jesus. That is why, Christians, we need to be a praying church and you need to be a praying Christian. Because through prayer, we tear down the work of the enemy. Through prayer, the captives are set free. These people wanted nothing to do with Jesus. They'd rather have back the demon-possessed guy. Don't you know people like that? I know people that when I started walking with the Lord, they wanted the old Brit back. They didn't like the new Brit who was walking with Jesus. They don't like Jesus in me. Jesus to them is repulsive. The Bible declares that the Christians are, to those who are perishing, the aroma of death, a foretasting of judgment, a foreshadowing of what it means for them to reject God. 
But to those who are being saved, we're the aroma of life, the taste of what it means to be given brand new life in Christ Jesus. And as we finish in verse 18 and 20, and he was getting into the boat, and the man who had been demonized was begging Jesus that he might accompany him. And he did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went right away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. That is a great place for this story to end. He wanted to go with Jesus, and Jesus said, That would be wonderful for you to be with me. I love you, and I'm going to spend eternity with you. But right now, I need you to tell the people who are in your life what great things I have done for you. And then when you're done doing that, I'll bring you home. Christians, until Jesus takes you home, you have the God-given task of telling people what great things he's done for you. When God has declared that you're done with that, he'll kill you and take you home, amen? But until that time, you're alive for that purpose. And where did Jesus say it started? Man, this is going to convict every one of us, including me. He said it started in the home. That the witness starts in the home. That's what he said. Go home to your own people and tell them what marvelous things the Lord has done for you. That is sometimes the hardest thing in the world. Sometimes it's easier to go to a stranger or an acquaintance. But to go home to our moms and our dads and our brothers and our sisters and our husbands and our wives and our children and say, let me tell you about the Lord is hard. Why? Because that's where the risk is because we love them so much. We don't want to be rejected by them for our faith. We don't want to be ridiculed. We don't want to alienate them. But saints, that is where Jesus Christ said it starts, is in the home. Witnessing for him starts in the home. And when we're faithful in the home, then God will entrust us with more. Is it your dream to be used by God as a missionary around the world? Let it start in your home. And then God will give you the desires of your heart. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for speaking to us this morning through your word. We thank you for teaching us and encouraging us. And we thank you for the ways, even Lord, that you have rebuked us. And I pray now that you would make application in all of our hearts for our individual lives with regards to what you've spoken to us. And God, if there's anybody in here that has not prayed that prayer of repentance, I pray that right now they would come before you and say, God, I'm a sinner. I realize that I need to be forgiven. They may have bowed down at one time. They may be able to admit who you are. They might even pray, but they've never been forgiven. God, this morning, Cause them to come before you and say, God, forgive me. I repent. I'm turning toward you. I want a brand new start and a brand new life. Knock upon the door of their hearts and let them say that to you right now. In Jesus' name, amen.